This evening I want to uh, talk further on the theme of uh, bringing our speech practice into challenging situations. We've started to bring a number of the tools that we've been developing over these days and, as it were, raise the bar, raise the degree of difficulty and go slowly and start to see the increased challenges for our skillful speech that are there with uh, more difficult situations. And it's a very crucial place for our, our practice to go. In fact, often at a retreat like this, people most want to get right to degree of difficulty 10, bring the speech tools and work it out and leave having received your money's worth. (laughs) And so I'd like to uh, bring in some new material related to working with challenges and maybe to look at some of where we've been from, from a few different perspectives. One way of looking at the situation or looking at the question of how we practice in difficult or more difficult situations is really to ask uh, what it means to have a difficult situation. One way of talking about it that these are situations where my mindfulness, wisdom, love, compassion, understanding, and skillful response through speech are more difficult. And we can ask what makes it difficult? What makes it difficult there? A few years ago, I asked the group at Spirit Rock that meets on Wednesday mornings, which I regularly teach along with uh, Sylvia Borstein, what topics they'd like to see explored. And right around the top of the list was the theme, how do we practice with difficult people? And they didn't put difficult people in quotation marks. And when I came to develop a talk, I developed a a talk series on that topic and eventually did a day long here. I don't know if anyone was at that. But... um, it became a talk series and a day long called The Dharma of Difficult People. <laughs> With difficult people in quotation marks. Okay? And one of the initial blazing insights into the highly obvious was this. <laughs> what defines a difficult person when you look at it experientially? A difficult person is someone with whom I have difficult experiences. (laughs) Do you get the shift? It's similar to the shift that we've emphasized in this retreat, right? And of course, uh, there may be certain people who many people find that they have difficult experiences arising in proximity to that person. So it's not to say that uh, there's not... um, some responsibility with that person or that uh, there are certain features of that person that actually are connected with my difficulties. But a very important point, because again, as we were saying earlier today, uh, I can have difficulties, or I could have had difficulties 10 years ago with a certain kind of situation, and now I don't. And so it's quite interesting. So what is... um, crucial is that I have difficult experiences. Namely, I have uh, difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, I get triggered, difficult body states, etc. What, right, what we've covered, right, right, what we've looked at. And so this is really what we're starting to, um, starting to explore more. And we can think of uh, the difficult situations as being uh, 
difficult interpersonal situations. We can think of difficult family, group, organizational situations. And looking at them, there are certain different ways that we would approach those. You know, we'd look at certain organizational questions and bring in some other perspectives and issues. And I'll just bring in that a little bit because I think we still want to keep things pretty basic. And we'll especially be talking just about two people talking, you know, much as we've done in our retreat where we focus on a dyad quite often. And of course, things get to higher levels of complexity with families, communities, groups, organizations, planets, etc. So the basic principle of training that we're offering is that we train in simplified and protected environments to develop certain capacities, which we then bring out into less protected and often more complex situations. That's our training principle. Really, really crucial. And we have to, we have to keep looking to develop the capacities we've been exploring, looking to develop them in situations where things are uh, easier. Remember we were, I remember there was the comment that I've never felt more grounded in an interpersonal situation. And we were talking about wonderful things that may have just happened, right? So we practice with those uh, low degree of difficulty, content areas, situations, and we develop in all the capacities we've been developing here mindfulness, the kind heart, ability to ground in the body, ability to track feelings, to track uh, values, to make observations, etc. We train in all those in the simplified situations. Again, this is a very um, basic principle you know, that we can see. If you think, again, think of the... Um, role of something like role plays in social change movements. People went into difficult situations uh, by role playing, by doing role plays that let them taste something of the situation. And we'll be actually doing some role plays tomorrow. It can be very effective. You know, I could see a new model for daily meditation. You do mindfulness, metta practice, 20, 30 minutes. You do some partner Empathy practice, maybe you do a little bit of partner triggering practice. <laughs> you know, and then, then maybe you do a role play, and then you're, okay, off to work. <laughs> Something like that. It's an interesting model. I mean, it, really, we, we don't have that now. Maybe 50 years we'll have those more relational practices will be more mainstream. That would be, I think that would match the needs of our lives, doesn't it? You think of, that's really why we're doing this retreat. The approach of working with difficult situations to maybe bring out some other aspects of this that that we've looked at, the approach is one in which we become more and more comfortable with being uncomfortable, with challenging situations. And being more comfortable with uncomfortable situations is often not comfortable. And so that's what our training is. That's why we have to learn, as it were, to be with the first arrow, right? We have to learn to be with the difficult, with the unpleasant, with, and notice our habitual reactions or the triggering that occurs. We have to study that over and over again. It's one reason why those teachings on uh, Vedana, a uh, feeling tone that Oren gave this morning, are so important. It could be a big part of our practice just to be, to study how we are with the pleasant and the unpleasant. The teaching is, the teaching from the last 2,500 years is that when we're not aware of the pleasant, we tend to grasp at it. When we're not aware of the unpleasant, we tend to react unconsciously. And when we're not aware of the neutral, we tend to space out doesn't come up on the flight or flight radar, right? Not significant. You know, there's not, what, 
Um, not if there's not anything significant on my, in terms of my what I, what matters most to me, right? So I space out, and we can study uh, the feeling tone more and more. We can see, and this is the teaching that it's actually in every moment. And the teaching is that th- that every moment has a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I mean, there are different ways to practice with it. One way is to look for more um, obvious or more significant uh, examples of feeling tone when the sense of pleasant or unpleasant is stronger and wait for those to come to one's attention and then really notice them, notice, track them, notice when reactions are starting to happen. It can be a big part of, of our speech practice. We develop that in the mindfulness practice. We start looking for that. So, for example, the example that I gave, uh, I think it was last night, of working with this uh, person who was the head of the organization that I was part of, where I would have these conversations with him, where I would get somewhat triggered into being judgmental of him because I thought that um, in my judgmental language, I would say he, well, he's not listening to me. Right? In terms of our honing into observation would be something like, I said this, and then one minute later, he brought up another topic. Something that'd be close to, an ob- close to observations. And so when I, would, uh, when I would actually do, when I looked further, and I was, a- th- this happened continually, as do, you know, our, some of our most difficult situations are chronic. And this happened continually, and I would, um, I got, you know, I, was, I had a mentor who was guiding me and I would take the, my meetings with him as like um, practice periods. And I'd go into San Francisco by BART and I would um, uh, do metta practice on BART and I'd do walking meditation on the way. BART, for those who, of you who are not local, is the mass transportation system in San Francisco area, right? Um, and I would do walking meditation, and I would really try to... This was after a while. First of all, when I first was doing these meetings, I would just get triggered and be (laughs) self-righteous. Which was not the first time that happened. (laughs) So, in our speech practice, we do get to study old patterns, right? Very interesting. And, And so, after a while... And this was, I think, what we were talking about earlier. As I studied what was happening more, sometimes I'd go, after a while, I would go in there and say, I'm going to wait to see if I get triggered and then really stay with it and notice it in the situation. After a while, it was kind of like slow motion, like we were talking about earlier. could really watch it in slow motion. As I watched it in more slow motion, I could see that there was a moment which was painful when I thought, he's not listening to me. Again, we could use different language if I was to talk back and forth, but that was how I would talk to myself. And I could actually find there was a moment that was quite painful of not thinking I was listened to that went right into the trigger, right? And, of course, in that situation, things happened so fast. It was like, bam, bam, right? Bam, and I'm off, right? That's, that's often how things work with our reactions. But when I studied it, it went into slow motion. I was able to see, oh, there's a moment of pain. When I was able to actually be with that moment of pain, I could also see the tendency to judge, but it wasn't taking me away. And I was able to uh, kind of stand my ground, not be reactive, and say... Um, you know, that point that I brought up, I'd like us to return to it if, I can, if we can, right? So non-reactive, fairly clear statement, and had a much better chance of working, right? But it was that touching into the moment of pain and seeing how the reactivity occurred. A lot of our reactions are like that. They're almost beneath the surface, right? They're almost beneath the surface, and they, they're patterns. And as we study them more closely we can sometimes see that moment of pain and 
it's like Oren said uh, with one of, the, I think, the interactions. Someone said something and he said, ouch. Remember that? And I, I first came across this about, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago. I had a friend who we were just talking and I said something to her and she said, ouch. And at the time I thought it was overly California cute. <laughs> But over time, I came to see that it was quite wise, actually. It was noting the feeling tone and saying, that hurts. And actually, quite a few groups, you may be in groups where that's actually a shared group practice, just to name something in that hurt, right? And it's naming it. And that, when there's a shared agreement, can be a very skillful practice in a group. That, uh, and noticing the ouch will tend toward saying ouch, noticing that it's painful, typically means that we actually can be, we're we're, um, saying that before the reaction takes off, right? And so this practice of Vedana is very, very powerful. Being able to be with the unpleasant, coming more to be willing to be with difficult situations. And again, we want to be clear on what's workable and what's too much, right? We want to make those discriminations. It's very helpful even to assign difficult situations a particular degree of difficulty as best we know. We can make mistakes on that. You know, we, you know, when we teach on speech, we often say choose a four or five and there sometimes are tens chosen. Um, but to know what the degree of difficulty is and then to see that a lot is quite workable to be willing to be with difficult situations, to be with challenging situations in the spirit of learning. For many of us, that goes against the grain. It goes against our conditioning. Many of us, for example, have conditioning to be conflict avoidant. Does anyone relate to that? Many of us. If we're conflict avoidant, it's good to look at that conditioning because we will tend not to want to learn in difficult situations. We'll want to, we'll tend to want to, as they say, get the hell out of there. Sorry for the language. (laughs) But we will, um, but so it's part of the training that we have in meditation of just being with challenging situations, unpleasant situations, is we develop more of a tolerance for challenges. And, and, you know, I would say my conditioning was definitely conflict avoidance. And over time, in the right circumstances, I developed quite uh, um, interest and with the right people, sometimes an excitement that we can work with a difficulty because with people with whom there's a connection, working with a difficulty can deepen the relationship. And one can learn tremendous things and it can actually be exciting and powerful and beautiful, you know. Um, there's a Tibetan phrase which goes, it's from a, a group of teachings called the Lojung teachings, which goes like this, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. And it, it actually, there can be some interest even in being tested This is from the teaching of the Buddha. There's a very famous uh, discourse called the simile of the saw. It has a lot in it, quite a lot of material. Uh, One of it, one of the uh, stories, which which I won't tell in detail, is about a person who has a very uh, widespread reputation in the community for being a nice and gentle person. And in the story, her, uh, what would it be called? Her, her um, I guess it, almost like a, a maid or someone who helped with the, her home, um, says she has a reputation for being nice and gentle. But I do not know whether this is well-deserved. I do not know it is simply, whether it is simply because she has never been tested. 
I will test her. <laughs> and after the, the, the Buddha tells the story, it's, it's quite something. And after the story, the Buddha says, some practitioner is extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him or her. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch him or her that it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. And so having that approach of saying, I'm willing to go into difficult situations and uh, I can learn there. And I think we already know that from the sitting on the cushion, that for all of us to be here now, we've had to sit through challenging moments, whether it's tiredness, some unpleasant sensations in the body, being confused, whatever, we've, we've stayed with it, right? It's part of practice. And we've stayed with it and we know that. And we can work with difficult situations in the same way. And we can uh, be open to them as something to learn. Ah, a difficult situation. What will I learn now? <laughs> Goes against the grain, doesn't it? For many of us. From the 8th century... Uh, from the text, The Bodhisattva's Way of Life by uh, Shantideva, one of the great texts in the Mahayana tradition. Favorite text of the Dalai Lama. And it really is about how to train to be able to um, work for awakening oneself and help others. That's what a Bodhisattva is. Someone who awakens but helps others others to awaken as well and helps in other ways. In a chapter on patience, he writes, therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have a difficult person for that person assists me in my conduct of awakening. What would it be like to have something like that approach? just like a treasure appearing in my house (laughs) without any effort on my half to obtain it. I should be happy to have a difficult person appear in my life. (laughs) Another way of talking about it in terms of difficult situations is to keep that sense of intending to understand, connect, and learn rather than to win. Another way to say it. One model that's been helpful for me in looking at how to work with difficult interpersonal situations is a way of differentiating what I think of as five forms of practice. Take two people. Two people talking together. Maybe they have a friendship, a relationship. Ideally, there are at least five possible kinds of practice that they can do together, let me say more cumulatively. Five forms of practice. And differentiating these can really help us to realize where we can actually uh, practice and what's possible in the situation. So the first kind of practice that's possible is for me to do inner work with whatever comes up in that relationship. And I can do that in my meditation I can try to do it in the context of our interaction. So this would be, you know, developing mindfulness, working with patterns, becoming more skilled at working with reactivity, developing metta, and so forth, right? I can do my inner work much as we've been doing here. And I can also develop what we might call our more relational practice. Could be the relational awareness practice, mindfulness inside and outside, It could be the speech practice that we've been developing. I can work on all of those. I can come to Spirit Rock, do a retreat, 
and so forth. Then the other person similarly can do those two forms of practice. Can do that person's own inner work and can also do the relational work, speech practice, try to be aware with the other and so forth. And then a fifth form of practice is to work collaboratively to work with what comes up, to make agreements. It might be to say, you know, we, you know if one is in a very close relationship and um, people have, let's say, the, the other inner practices, one can say, you know, when, when that happens, I tend to get triggered. Let's try to see how we can work with this and learn, you know, and so forth. And um, so it can be quite beautiful to work collaboratively around just what happens, where there are difficulties, and so forth. So at least five, maybe we could, name, we could name others, but at least those five types of practice just in the dyad. At least, at least two forms of practice are always possible. Not all five are possible in all relationships, right? Sometimes, as you know, we, and a lot of our examples that are the hardest are where the other person may not have an interest in an inner practice and may not be willing even to be collaborative, may not be willing to talk together about what's happening, right? That happens, right? Some of our most difficult situations are where the other person is, we sometimes use the word stonewalling, uh, refuses to talk. And these are quite difficult situations. But guess what? Two forms of practice are always possible. Which are they? Hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> my inner practice and my speech practice are always possible. And sometimes we forget that. We have a difficult relationship. The other person is stonewalling or is really not available even to talk. And we think, okay, okay I guess I don't need to take any responsibility. I'll just react. Do you know that one sometimes? Sometimes we think if the other person isn't meeting me or matching me, I can give up my practice. And that's, that's something to look at, right? something really to look at, because there can be a, a tremendous effect on a relationship when we actually stay with our practice and work with it. Most dysfunctional relational patterns do involve dynamics from both people. And so if I do a certain amount of my work and I'm not participating in the dysfunctional dynamic anymore, things may change. And so it's, we, we, we often don't go there, right? We often don't think that because we think, oh, there's a, the other person is just not even meeting me at all, therefore forget it, right? We go there a lot. That's not, I think, um, so wise. Although it can be extremely frustrating to be earnestly doing one's practice when the other person is just, oh, whatever. Right? That's hard. Right? That's a hard situation. But it's, I, think it's, um, I think it's the path of our practice. And sometimes those kind of situations are high up on the scale of degree of difficulty. Okay? So we have to know that. that. Those are not easy, difficult situations, so to speak or middle-level difficult situations. Okay, so some further ways to uh, practice. This will be partly bringing in what we've already done, uh, to, uh, but giving some little different uh, glosses on it. Ground in the body, right? We can ground as much as we can in the body. When we get triggered, we can go right into grounding. You know, when we get triggered, there's, we talked about that, there's a kind of a physiological effect, an effect in the brain. Uh, some psychologists call this flooding, right? The experience of just one's biochemistry just being you know, uh, extremely activated. And it's very hard in those situations actually to be present, but one can do things that are calming and that tend to regulate one's system. Sometimes that means you have to just leave the situation as, as we were exploring earlier this afternoon and just take a time out, try to come back to a more regulated system and just set, make a boundary and say, 
it's really not so wise for me, or whatever language is appropriate to stay in this interaction right now or talk. Can we come back later? And again, again there are going to be some people who, yeah, yeah, I want us to be able to be as skillful as possible. And some people will say, no, I want you to talk right now. And yet then you have to, um, I, I think, uh, set your boundaries. You know, it's, it's unlikely to be uh, helpful at all if one's really in a very reactive state. And so that's, that's, that's part of what we've explored before, coming back to balance, doing things which bring one back to balance, grounding in the body. Um, I was talking just over lunch, I think. Maybe it was lunch, maybe it was supper, I forget, with uh, Howie, and, uh, who's teaching the other retreat, Howie Cohen. And we were talking about swimming. And I made the comment that uh, uh, when I was going to a lot of those meetings where I had that difficult boss and I would go to other meetings, uh, often the meetings, energetically I would feel somewhat tight, stuck. And I would say, I said, in those situations, actually doing swimming for 30, 40 minutes was actually way more reliable than meditating because it worked on the level of the body. Right? So it's, it's a very, very interesting uh, point, really, and it's really to have these multiple tools in our, in our repertoire. So again, we've emphasized embodiment, grounding in the body so much in multiple ways, being with the body is important. So again, one can develop that in all sorts of ways. Have a body practice would be great. Have some way that you connect with the body every day. Walking, could be walking, yoga, qigong, something like that. It can, it's really crucial for uh, a lot of aspects of this practice. Some ways of coming back. And of course, as with, as with what I was saying last night, we want to really keep studying all of our patterns of reactivity. We need to become experts on our own patterns of reactivity if we're interested in working with difficult situations. And we can study them in some uh, degree of um, protection or some a little more ease. We study them on the meditation cushion. The same patterns of reactivity that we'll find in interpersonal or group situations will be there on the cushion. And we can study them, like my anger that I was talking about uh, last night. And so um, we might sit there in our meditation and say, oh, I want to get to that calm. Oh, I really want calm. And then I start getting reactive and judging myself. I guess maybe I'm, you know, I should have meditated in the morning, not at night. Ah, I messed up again. (laughs) So just study that. Just keep studying it. Studying, this isn't maybe what you signed up for. Maybe you signed, I I certainly, when I started meditating, I signed up for calm, peace, wisdom, and bliss. (laughs) And I figured I'd meditate for a year, and that would kind of do it, and I'd be on a plateau of bliss and wisdom and peace for the rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't work that way. <laughs> um, so at a certain point, it's just to remember to actually have that interest to investigate where we get stuck or lost. I find that to have that interest, we need also to have a certain amount of experiences in meditation which actually do get us towards that calm and peace. You know, it, that's harder to be interested when it's that way a lot of the time. And so it can be actually skillful to go for what brings calm and peace a certain amount of the time, you know, to go for that, to meditate, to um, be with that calm. To, you know, retreats are wonderful for that, you know. There is an aspect of um, our speech practice that we haven't emphasized so much that is really crucial for difficult situations. 
And I think it's been implicit in everything we've done, but we haven't really named it quite yet in an explicit way. And that aspect is uh, listening and deep listening. And it's a very, uh, it's a very powerful image. And in, in spiritual traditions, listening becomes a, a wonderful metaphor for going deeply in life. And some of you know, uh, down in the lower hall, we have a uh, what would be called a tanka, which is a Tibetan. Uh, you know, tanka is that Tibetan um, embroidered. Uh, often, hat will have a mandala or an image on it, and it's actually used for visualization purposes. We have one in the lower hall of the great Tibetan poet and meditator Milarepa who lived in, I think, about the uh, 11th, 12th century. He's, he's the most revered meditator in Tibetan history. And he's been important for me as a figure. There's, there's a biography of him which is quite beautiful, as well as, as, as books of his poems. And they're called songs. And they're quite wonderful. And I've sometimes used them on retreat. You know, um, some once... When I was first meditating, when I was like in my 20s, a little bit of a macho meditator, and I would, uh, I'd like to stay up late, and I'd be meditating, and I'd, I'd be a little bit tired, and it'd be like 11 o'clock, and I'd, um, at that time at Insight Meditation Society, we had a library, which was open. You know, within a few years, they took that away, or they locked it up, but people used to go in and read books, which... But I used to go in and read the uh, biography of Milarepa, and it was always good for at least another hour. <laughs> but it was very inspiring. But he, the images of him, always have his hand cupped to listen. And some of you know also Quan Yin, who's in Metta in the lower. Uh, is, is this Quan Yin? I think so. I think so. Quan Yin is the Bodhisattva of compassion. She's a transgender bodhisattva, male in India, and becomes uh, both male and female in Tibet, and in China, female. Interesting. And her name in China is She Who Listens to the Cries of the World. There's the image of listening again. Very powerful. Um, and we can think of meditation as a training in listening. We listen to our bodies, our minds, our hearts, it's a very, it's a very beautiful, it's a very beautiful um, image. In difficult situations, we have to learn how to listen deeply. There's a beautiful story, it's a uh, children's story, some of you may know, called The Other Way to Listen. Does anyone read that book for your kids? Anyone know that? I want to read the beginning of the book. This is about, this is... Um, This is a story about listening. I used to know an old man. This is a a child speaking. I used to know an old man who would walk by any cornfield and hear the corn singing. Teach me, I'd say, when we passed on by. I never said a word when he was listening. Just tell me how you learned to hear that corn. And he'd say, it takes a lot of practice. You can't be in a hurry. And I'd say... I have the time. He was so good at listening, once he heard wildflower seeds burst open, beginning to grow underground. That's hard to do. He said he was just lucky to have been up by himself there in the canyon after a rain. He said it was the quietest place he'd ever been, and he stayed there long enough to understand the quiet. I said, I bet you were surprised when you heard those seeds. But he said, no, I wasn't surprised at all. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. He just smiled, remembering. Another time he heard a a rock kind of murmur good things to a lizard. (laughs) I was there. We saw the lizard sunning on a rock. Of course, we stopped. The old man said, I wonder how that lizard feels about the rock it's sitting on and how the rock feels about the lizard. He always asked himself hard questions that took a while to answer. We leaned against another rock a long time past, and then he said, did you hear that? 
They like each other fine. I said, I didn't hear a thing. He said, sometimes everything being right makes a kind of sound. Like just now, it wasn't much more than a good feeling that I heard from that old rock. Were you surprised to hear it? I always had to ask. He said, not a bit. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. I said, I wish I'd heard it too. He said he thought I might someday. So what we've been invited to do in a lot of our practices today and yesterday is to develop the capacity to listen deeply, to listen for the feeling or emotion in another person. And it takes a lot of listening capacity to do that when they're difficult situations. Can I have the intention to listen deeply in a difficult situation to the other person's emotions, to the other person's sense of what matters, what that person values? It's not easy. You know, how do we do that? We can do that as a practice again, I think in less challenging situations, to have that kind of deep listening do a deep listening practice in a conversation. What's beneath the surface? What's not obvious? Can I listen for that deeper situation, that deeper value, or the deeper emotion? I think that those who are skilled in working with conflict and skilled in mediation often do that. It's been interesting for me to uh, have done a fair amount of mediation with people, been invited to be in situations. And as one trains further, there can be a kind of intuitive sense of what's there, almost what is the deeper value that none of them are in touch with that is waiting to be shared. That can be part of our deep listening. Or when someone is upset with you, can you listen deeply for what's beneath the surface? Again, not easy, right? Train in the easier situations, and then we move to the more difficult ones. We need all the mindfulness trainings. We need all the trainings that we're doing to be able to listen deeply like that. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, says without these kinds of trainings like mindfulness, metta, and so forth, but particularly mindfulness where we study reactivity, difficulty in ourselves and then increasingly can see it in others. He says, without these trainings, to listen to another person's suffering, especially if the other person's speech is full of negative judgments, misconceptions, and blaming, will be very difficult if you don't have these trainings. Even with all of these tools, practices, and techniques, the essence of our speech practice and the essence of our being with challenging or difficult situations is being rooted more and more in wisdom and love and compassion and the intention to understand, as we've been saying, And I want to end with a a story that brings this out. It brings out, it's a story of someone who was trained in all these different techniques and actually encountered a very difficult situation. This was a person actually who wasn't so much trained in um, in the techniques of... uh, mindfulness and nonviolent communication, but was being trained in Aikido. There was a, a man named Terry Dobson, some of you know, who was uh, one of the early students of Aikido in Japan, a kind of contemplative martial art. And this is a story he told. 
This is about his time studying Aikido in Tokyo. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty. A few housewives with their kids, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dirty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing and he was big, drunk and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of the stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen in fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken this connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. (laughs) This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. Mm. (laughs) Had not studied NBC. (laughs) (laughs) I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. (laughs) All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. (laughs) A split second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear splitting. I remember the strangely joyous lilting quality of it as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman, sitting there, immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said, in an easy vernacular beckoning to the drunk, come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels, why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. (laughs) The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. 
Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know. We warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down. We look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from these ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. (laughs) (laughs) It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the labor, eyes twinkling. (laughs) As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy, Righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man uh, cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, this is a difficult predicament. Indeed, sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. Let's just sit now for a little bit. <laughs>